I want to do drawings that will touch some people. What I want to express in both figure and landscape isn't anything sentimentally melancholy, but deep sorrow. In short, I want to get to the point where people say of my work, that man feels deeply, that man feels keenly. What am I in the eyes of most people? A non-entity, an eccentric, or an unpleasant person, somebody who has no position in society and never will. In short, the lowest of the low. All right then, even if that were absolutely true, then I should one day like to show by my work what such an eccentric, such a nobody, has in his heart. That is my ambition, based less on resentment than on love. Though I am often in the depths of misery, there is still calmness, pure harmony, and music inside me. I see paintings or drawings in the poorest cottages, in the dirtiest corners, and my mind is driven towards these things with an irresistible momentum. Vincent van Gogh, July 1882. to the Makers and Mystics Artist Profile Series, Episode 28. I'm Victoria Emily Jones from artandtheology.org, and I will be your guest host for today's show. Most people know Vincent van Gogh primarily as the eccentric painter of The Starry Night, who cut off his ear and later killed himself. But Vincent the Man is far more than his mental illness. And Vincent the artist is no mere one-hit wonder, as that night sky, as he called it, is only one of the many masterworks he completed in his short career of 10 years. From his drawings and paintings of Holland's rural and urban poor in the first half of the 1880s, he would go on to paint portraits of other neighbors and friends, and most strikingly himself, as well as sunflowers, irises, cypresses, olive groves, vineyards, wheat fields, almond blossoms, and other small natural wonders of southern France. His experience of the numinous in the day-to-day pervades his work. Like all of us, Vincent was a complex person with faith and compassion and anger and hope and doubt and love. He was sometimes irritating, even insufferable, and at other times endearing. He was fluent in Dutch, French, English, and German, and he loved reading about and discussing art and literature. He also loved going on log nature walks ever since childhood. He would often wax poetic about the lilac-white sky reflected in the ditches, the patterns of light cast by the sun through beech leaves, the seas of young corn whose fields' furrows seemed to undulate like waves. He once wrote to his brother Theo, Many landscape painters don't have that intimate knowledge of nature which those have who looked with sentiment at the fields from childhood on. You will say, but everyone has surely seen landscapes and figures since they were children. Question. Was everyone also thoughtful as a child? Question, did everyone who saw them, heath, grassland, fields, woods, also love them and the snow and the rain and the storm? Not everyone has done that like you and I have, end quote. When asked what life he thought best, he said that without a doubt, it is one lived in harmony with nature and with that something on high that is higher than nature. Vincent hungered for companionship and suffered a succession of unhappy love affairs, but he cultivated intense friendships with artists and others, but most especially with his younger brother, Theo, who was his closest confidant and biggest supporter. The preserved catalog of 650-plus letters Vincent wrote to Theo is how we know so much about Vincent's life and inner journey. 
Vincent van Gogh was born March 30, 1853, to a middle-class family in the village of Zundert in the Dutch province of North Brabant, where his father worked as a Protestant minister. After some intermittent schooling, in summer 1869, at age 16, Vincent was given a job as a clerk at the Hague branch of Goupil & Company, an art-dealing firm in which his uncle Sent was a partner. The trade acquainted him with various works of art and individual artists, and he started frequenting museums. He developed a special liking for the French realist painter Jean-Francois Millet, as well as for Rembrandt and Eugène Delacroix. Four years later, he was promoted to Goupil's London branch, and after a failed romantic pursuit, was transferred to Paris. While in London, Vincent came under the spell of Charles Spurgeon, and also started reading religious works by Thomas Akempis and John Bunyan. In 1875, he had what one might call a born-again experience. From this point on, he had all the religious fervor of a new evangelical convert. He spent hours transcribing scripture passages, summarizing sermons, and copying hymns for Theo, and studying the Bible with a young colleague in his Paris apartment. His letters took on a more didactic tone as he sought to encourage his family in the faith. This newfound enthusiasm caused Vincent to lose interest in his job at Goupil, and he was eventually dismissed. After some short gigs as an assistant school teacher outside London and a bookshop apprentice in Dordrecht, he decided to follow in the footsteps of his father and become a pastor. He stayed for a year with his uncle Jan in Amsterdam while studying for his seminary entrance exams, but he struggled with Hebrew and Greek and ended up breaking off his preparations before risking failure. Instead, he decided to become a lay preacher, so after completing the mandatory training, he set off for the Borinage, an impoverished coal mining district in Belgium. Atypical of most other missionaries at the time, Vincent wanted to fully enter into the experience of those he served, so he adopted the same living conditions. He gave up the comfortable housing provided to him and moved into a hovel where he slept on straw. He regularly gave away his food to those he felt needed it more, and he used his clothes and bed linens to dress the wounds of miners. He even went down into the mines. When his six-month trial period was up and the evangelization committee came to assess his work, they were appalled to find him virtually indistinguishable from his parishioners. They deemed his behavior too radical, unbefitting the office of gospel minister, and they terminated their financial support. Convinced that God still wanted to use him there, Vincent continued living in the Borinage without an income. He felt frustrated and misunderstood, but he came to see his primary vocation as love. It is good to love as many things as one can, he wrote, for therein lies true strength, and those who love much, do much, and accomplish much, and whatever is done with love is done well. And elsewhere, I cannot help thinking that the best way of knowing God is to love many things. Love this friend, this person, this thing, whatever you like, and you will be on the right road to understanding Him better. During this time, Vincent began sketching more, a practice he had picked up while working as an art dealer but had let fall by the wayside. He thus discovered another way to carry out his mission to love many things, and that was through art making. Theo was very supportive of this decision and started giving his brother an allowance, which he would continue doing for the rest of his life. In October 1880, Vincent moved to Brussels, where he studied anatomical and perspective drawing at the Art Academy. 
Six months later, he moved back in with his parents and fell in love with his widowed cousin, Key Voss. Though she was completely uninterested and famously responded to Vincent's marriage proposal with never, no, never, Vincent blamed her father and his, who both objected to the union mainly on the grounds that Vincent was unable to provide for a wife. Being clergy, the two men personified the church in Vincent's mind, which put a sour taste in his mouth against organized religion. That, compounded with his rejection by the missionary board for what they deemed fanaticism, but Vincent merely called love, caused him to break with institutional Christianity altogether. This doesn't mean that Vincent lost his faith, only that he abandoned institutional expressions of it. His mature religious position can be summarized by his remark, I am no friend of the present Christianity, though its founder was sublime. He continued to pursue a life of self-sacrificial love modeled after the example of Jesus, and he remained just as awake to wonder to the presence of the infinite in the mundane. He maintained a respect for the Bible as literature, especially the Gospels, and though he no longer studied it intensely, he continued to read it alongside modern literature, for as he said, the consolation it contains is Christ. Vincent's fight with his dad led him to move to The Hague, where he found models at the local almshouse, soup kitchens, and third-class waiting rooms. One of his models was Sen, a pregnant sex worker with a young daughter. He took them in under his care and wrote movingly about the birth of her son, Willem, how her rocking him at the cradle reminded him of the eternal poetry of Christmas, of Mary and baby Jesus. Vincent's love for Sen was of a protective kind, not passionate as with Key. He wanted to save her from a life of prostitution and hoped to marry her, as he had always wanted a family. But he soon realized that the four of them could not survive in the city on the money Theo was sending. So Vincent ended up breaking it off and moving to Noonan. Noonan is where Vincent completed his first major work, The Potato Eaters. Painted in 1885, it shows a family crowded around a small table, sharing a simple meal of potatoes and coffee by the dim light of an oil lamp. This somber painting has a sacramental quality that suggests the sharing of the Eucharistic bread and wine. Vincent declared himself a painter of peasant life and often showed people at work, digging, sewing, reaping, spinning, weaving. He paid these folks a modest sum to pose for him, sometimes going without food to be able to do so. He would send the finished paintings to Theo, who was now an art dealer in Paris, in hopes that he could sell them. After a three-month stint learning figure painting at the Antwerp Academy, Vincent moved to Paris, the center of the burgeoning modern art world, thus ending his Dutch period. There he encountered Impressionism, Pointillism, Synthetism, Cloisonism, etc., and became friends with artists like Bernard, Toulouse-Lautrec, Signac, Gauguin, Pissarro, and Seurat. He fell in love with Japanese art. He experimented with different styles, techniques, and color theories, making the change from browns and grays to bright yellows, blues, reds, and greens. He exhibited his work on a few minor occasions and was generally respected in the art community. He exchanged paintings with other artists. Vincent was very temperamental though, and he had developed a habit of excessive drinking, which sometimes caused tension at home. He lived in Theo's apartment, which Theo's friends now tried to avoid. Tired of city life, Vincent set out for Arles in the south of France in February 1888. Many of his most recognizable paintings come from his Arles period, including night cafes, vases of sunflowers, his bedroom in the yellow house, 
self-portraits with bandaged ear, and my favorites, farmer sowing seed. I am still enchanted by snatches of the past, he wrote to his friend Emile Bernard, and have a hankering after the eternal, of which the sower and the sheaf of corn are the symbols. Vincent saw life as a kind of sowing time, and death as a harvest. In Sower with Setting Sun, he shows both the seeds and mature wheat, alluding to the cycle of death and rebirth. A brilliant light shines over the entire field, cast by the citron yellow sun, Vincent's symbol for the presence of Christ. In my pictures, I want to say something consoling, as music does, wrote Vincent. I want to paint men and women with the touch of the eternal, whose symbol was once the halo, which we try to convey by the very radiance and vibrancy of our coloring. In Arl, Vincent wanted to start an artist colony, where artists could come and live together in community and encourage one another in their work. You know I've always thought it ridiculous for painters to live alone, Vincent wrote to Theo. You always lose when you're isolated. A large donation from Theo enabled Vincent to rent four rooms in what he called the Yellow House, and at Theo's prompting, Paul Gauguin, a rising star like Vincent, moved in in October 1888. Vincent was thrilled to see his vision starting to actualize, but they both had difficult personalities and fundamentally different approaches to art, and over the nine weeks Gauguin lived there, their relationship deteriorated, culminating in the famous ear-severing incident. Vincent said he was not conscious of what happened, but the oral newspaper reported that he had cut off his left ear with a straight razor, wrapped it in a newspaper, and handed it to a woman at the brothel he frequented, telling her to guard this object carefully. He was found the next morning with significant blood loss and was taken to the hospital, where he was diagnosed with a form of epilepsy accompanied by acute insanity and visual and auditory hallucinations. This was the first of several mental health attacks Vincent would suffer in the next year. Not long after being released from the hospital in Arles, Vincent admitted himself into St. Paul de Mossel, a psychiatric hospital some 12 miles north in Saint-Rémy. Converted from a medieval monastery, the asylum was run by a lay staff in collaboration with two orders of nuns. During Vincent's stay, his health fluctuated, with treatments consisting mainly of regular long baths. He painted in and around the cloistered garden, which seemed to be therapeutic, but when he was caught trying to eat his paints one day, the doctor took them away. When Vincent was in a lucid state, he was allowed to paint again. He relished the view outside his bedroom window of an enclosed field, which he painted many times throughout the year, in rain and snow and sunshine, when its wheat was young and green, and later ripe and yellow and being harvested. His most famous painting, The Starry Night, is a telescoped view outside the same barred window with the addition of an ideal village. Heaven and earth seem to join in mystical exultation as a silhouetted cypress tree rises from the ground like a torch to greet the sweeping concourse of astronomical bodies in the deep blue sky. During his evangelical period, Vincent had written that, quote, when all sounds cease, God's voice is heard under the stars. And again, that the stars, quote, speak of the love of God and make one think of the words, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Less than a year before this painting, he echoed the same sentiment, confessing to Theo that he had a, quote, tremendous need for, shall I say the word, for religion. So I go outside at night to paint the stars. 
San Remy is also where Vincent carried out his only three explicitly religious paintings, a Good Samaritan after Delacroix, a Pieta after Delacroix, in which he gave the dead Jesus his own features, and the Raising of Lazarus after Rembrandt, this time with Lazarus bearing Vincent's likeness, and Jesus symbolized by the sun. These paintings likely express Vincent's longing for resurrection and healing. Wanting to be closer to Theo and to no longer feel so confined, Vincent checked out of the hospital and moved north to Auvers, where he was cared for by Dr. Paul Gachet. His health appeared to be improving, but only two months later, he ended up shooting himself in the upper abdomen. He died two days later, on July 29, 1890, with Theo at his bedside. He was 37 years old. Devastated by his brother's death, Theo died only six months later, at age 33. Vincent van Gogh is one of the most important artists of the late 19th century, a master colorist whose exaggerated use of complementary colors, applied in thick dabs and writhing streaks, captures the radiant energy of the universe. And it's not just the critics and the collectors who love him. His Starry Night, for example, is one of the most mass-produced images of all time, attesting to its appeal across all classes and cultures. Vincent's art is a celebration of life in all its toil and glory. He aimed to convey a feeling of nature and of people rather than faithful copies, to communicate something of the sacred that he perceived as infusing them both. Even so, he always considered himself a realist, painting what he saw. Taken altogether, his paintings express both deep anguish and deep joy as do his letters, which are themselves a masterwork. Through failed dreams and disappointments, thwarted love and uncertain illness, Vincent never stopped pouring himself lovingly into his work, drawing our gaze to the world's resplendence. And the religious impulse never left him. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like to learn more about the Makers and Mystics podcast or about artandtheology.org, be sure to see the show notes of this episode or visit makersandmystics.com. Mm-hmm.